Well, it's going to be a help if you have uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2 to 3, out in front of you. If you just joined us for the first time in a few weeks this week, um, uh, you might be able to see from the notice sheet, or you might have heard, or maybe this is news to you. We're going through a short series on five ways that every Christian can and should be involved in spreading the gospel. And so the two sessions that we've done so far are praying for the gospel uh, and giving for the gospel. And this evening we're going to think about living for the gospel. Uh, The next two that we're going to consider are speaking for the gospel and also being part of a gospel church. And so today marks a bit of a bit of a change in some of the things that we're considering. The first two have been uh, what you might say uh, invisible, I suppose. Uh, When the when the when the world sees Christians, it won't necessarily see the praying and the giving that goes on. But these next three, the world is able to see. It is able to see Christians living for the gospel. It is able to hear Christians speaking for the gospel. And it is able to see the Christian church. And so there's a bit of a change, but that's not a change in order of priority. You remember when Joseph spoke two weeks ago, he emphasised the point that unless our uh, spreading of the gospel is is, uh, founded upon our prayers for the gospel going out, then all our efforts will be useless. So this change in emphasis from the, from the invisible to the visible isn't a change in emphasis from the less important to the more important. We've done the more important, as it were. We're now changing from the invisible to the visible. Now, I wonder if you've come across this uh, saying. I expect most of you have. Um, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. We've had a couple of chuckles down here from the front. It's a fairly well-known phrase, and it's a fairly well-despised phrase, actually, in a lot of circles. Uh, There's a lot that's wrong with that phrase, really. Uh, The main thing that's going on there is it it creates this dichotomy, this split. It creates these two opposites, as if you've got living on the one side and then speaking for the gospel on the other. And in creating that split... The way the phrase is worded seems to emphasise living for the gospel. And it sort of says, ah, you only need to speak and tell people if it's really necessary. But that's normally not necessary, so you can do away with that and you can really focus on just living for the gospel. Don't worry about speaking or anything like that. Well, actually, that's not the biblical pattern that we see at all. Uh, In order to believe... We need to believe that the historical facts of who Jesus is, what he came to do, his, basically his death and his resurrection. We can't explain those things to people just by the way we live. We can't do it through interpretive dance or whatever else. We've got to speak and explain to people the truths of the gospel. And that phrase has often been misused by some as an excuse as to why they don't need to go out and tell people. It's often used as an excuse of why we don't need to speak. Um, and yet, as uh, recognising the weaknesses of that phrase, we need to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the saying goes. Uh, there is some good in that phrase. It's good because of what it urges us to do. The sentiment of that phrase is to urge Christians towards godly living. It's to urge Christians to live lives which reflect the gospel. 
is to urge Christians to live lives in such a way that the world around them sees that there is a difference. It recognises that the opportunity to speak often follows the opportunity to live out your faith. And what we're going to be thinking about this evening is that as Christians, we ought to be those who are first living out the reality of our faith. Living in a way that is distinctive. Living in a way that people will notice. Living in a way that people will start to ask questions. And next week, then we're going to go on to consider how then we ought to be able to speak about the gospel. But first, this evening, we're thinking about how Christians ought to live lives that are distinctive in order that people uh, might recognise the difference. Now, there's many places in the Bible that you could go for that. Now, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you'll know Romans 12, that's basically been one of the main messages of Romans 12 and 13 and even on into 14 and 15. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul's telling us in Romans, live totally different lives to the world around you. So different that it will be evident to the people around you. Instead of Romans, you could go to Matthew 5, for example. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gathers his disciples together and tells them, and remember the, the religious environment that those disciples would have been in, where you've got the Pharisees who have every, every law jotted down and, and, and memorised and known and, and performed each day. And Jesus says to them, your righteousness ought to exceed that even of the Pharisees. The lives of the, of the disciples in the kingdom of heaven, the lives of Jesus' followers, it is of a much higher standard than those even of the Pharisees. There's all sorts of places in the Bible we could go to see where, where Christians are urged and taught about the standard of, of living that we ought to live up to. But I've come to 1 Peter chapter 2 for one significant reason. Because one, in 1 Peter chapter 2, especially verse 12, Peter explicitly equates gospel living with gospel witness. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says your gospel living, your distinctive way of living, is going to form your gospel witness. Let's read that. Verse, chapter, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Notice where Peter starts. Verse 11, as aliens and strangers in the world. This is what you are already. This is what he spent the first part of chapter 2 explaining. You are aliens and strangers in this world. You're not citizens of this world. You are God's people. You're, you're aiming for the, for the heavenly city. That's what you are. That's your new identity. And Peter doesn't phrase it in a, in a process of becoming those things, although elsewhere in the Bible you might find that. Uh, Peter says, no, this has already happened. You have been transferred from darkness into light. You once were not a people, now you are a people. This is your identity, if you're a Christian. 
Therefore, in light of that new identity, then he goes on, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives. What does that mean? Uh, If you're, well, you'd have to be a little bit older than me, but there's a program on TV a number of years ago called The Good Life. Okay, some people are smiling. I was at Senior Moments a few weeks ago and that was one of the answers to their quiz, you see. So I know at least some people here know about The Good Life. And uh, The Good Life uh, was a was a, a sitcom about two people who lived in, they, they were trying to make the good life for themselves and there were two neighbours. And one one side of the neighbours were trying to get the good life through money and wealth and, and prosperity. And the other neighbour was trying to get the good life through this kind of off-grid living sort of thing, you know, growing their own vegetables in the back garden and uh, things like that. They each had different ideas of the good life. Okay. And basically it came to prosperity and, and satisfaction and, and happiness and, and those sorts of things. That's what was portrayed as the good life. Is that what Peter means when he says live such good lives? Live lives of prosperity. Live lives of attractiveness. Live lives that people would want to emulate. I would say no, actually, that's, that's not what Peter's referring to. When Peter refers to living such good lives, he's not, he's not meaning live prosperous lives. He's not meaning live lives that people would be jealous of. He's not meaning live lives that others in the world would want to trade you for. He's saying live good lives, that is, lives that are characterised by good deeds. You see that in the verse. Uh, live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. It's the good deeds of your life that characterise, that create that good life. And so that means as we, uh, as we live these lives, the attractiveness that we're trying to create, the, the witness for the gospel that we're trying to make, is not some sort of assimilation to the culture. We're not trying to get to the point where we're saying to the world, look, if you become a Christian, uh, we, you know, we're just like you, really. You can just stay as you are, but just become a Christian and you get all these added benefits added on. That's not the aim of what we're doing. When, we, when we're trying to live these good lives, we're, we're trying to be attractive, we're trying to be different of the world because, because we're obedient to God. And sometimes that attractiveness will, well, actually not be attractive to any. Some will recognise the difference and continue to accuse you of doing wrong. You can imagine how that might happen today. Christians who stand up for uh, biblical truth, things that they're they're commanded or taught to do, for example, not working on a Sunday, on the Sabbath. Some Christians, as we're hearing this morning, might want to separate that day off from others and, and in obedience to God say, I'm not going to work on the Sabbath. And the world might then say, you're wrong. You're doing that wrong. I'm accusing you of doing wrong. And the Christians say, no, I'm being obedient to God. Other ways, you can imagine it cropping up in issues of sexuality. What the Bible says is right and wrong, the world around us often says, no, you're wrong to say that. Well, actually, we're saying, no, I'm just being obedient to the Bible. There's all sorts of ways in which our Christian lives can clash against the values of the world and we might be accused of doing wrong. But sometimes the things that we're accused of will be 
totally irrational things. In AD 64, the first century, there was a huge fire in Rome and it destroyed most of the city. And the emperor, Emperor Nero, do you know who he blamed for the fire? He blamed the Christians. Why did he blame the Christians? What evidence did he have that the Christians started it? None. He just didn't like the Christians. The Christians were this new religion that nobody knew much about. They were different. They weren't like the rest of us. They weren't the Jews with their old-fashioned religion. They weren't the Romans with their many gods. They were sort of just different. So it was their fault. And they were heavily persecuted for several hundred years after that. Christians won't always be accused of doing wrong based on reason. Sometimes Christians will be accused of doing wrong merely because the world hates Christ. And uh, though, Peter says, though the world might accuse you of doing wrong, the lives you ought to live should be a demonstration of goodness. A demonstration of obedience to God. Through those false accusations, the persistent integrity of the Christian should be a strong witness. And Peter's expectation is that if that's how Christians live, then some of those who are accusing Christians of doing wrong, some of those who are against Christians, would turn from their position and actually become Christians themselves. I get that from the end of the verse. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Which are the people who are going to glorify God on the day that Christ returns? Surely it's those who are in faith waiting for him. Those who have been saved. And Peter's saying, as the world looks at your lives as they're distinctive and different and out of the ordinary and accused of being wrong and false and old-fashioned and whatever else he might accuse you of, as the world looks, some will be convinced and some might turn and some might trust Christ. So the question is, what sort of good deeds then is the world going to notice? And what sort of good deeds should we as Christians be seeking to do in order to uh, help spread this gospel message in order to be distinctive, in order to perhaps attract some to Christ. Well, in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through to the end of what we read, chapter 3, 18, we find three specific areas that Peter deals with. And so this evening we're going to just look briefly at each of those three areas there on your sheet, if, you want to, if that helps you follow. Um, three areas that Christians should be um, living differently to the world around us. The first is submission to the authorities. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, the supreme authority, or to governors. Whether you live under Theresa May's government, uh, President Trump's government, Putin, Trudeau, Macron, or even Kim Jong-un, Whichever authority you live under, the Bible teaches us, submit to that authority. Submit to that authority. Why? Well, again, look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. 
First, that means submit yourselves as unto the Lord. When you submit to these authorities, don't kind of do it half-heartedly as if, ah, well, I'll do it when it suits me, or I'll do it when it's not so much of an inconvenience. Submit as unto the Lord. Submit for the Lord's sake. Submit wholeheartedly. But if we submit for the Lord's sake, that also means that there are limits to our submission. First and foremost, we're submitting to Jesus Christ as the Lord, as the King of Kings. And secondly, we're submitting to the authorities that he has instituted. And so, as we were thinking about a few weeks ago in the morning service, when the authorities might lead us to do anything that is against God's law, that's the time when we reject the authorities. But as far as we're able, and for as long as we're able, and until their instructions put us in direct opposition to what God tells us to do, then we must and we ought continue to live in submission to the authorities. Why is that? Well, verse 15, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Notice this, he doesn't say, because if you submit to authorities, lots of people will be converted. No, it's not a direct relationship like that. It's not that your obedience to the authorities will cause many people to turn to Christ. That's not the inference that he draws. He says, um, your obedience to the authorities will silence the talk of ignorant men. It will, it will, it will make the church be considered blameless, as it were, above reproach. When the ignorant men, when the foolish men, when those who reject God and his ways turn to blaming different portions of society for, what, for whatever's going on, as, you know, as, we, as we mentioned Emperor Nero doing, they'll turn to the church and they'll say, hang on, we've, we've nothing to blame them for. They've generally been submissive. They've been obedient. They're the ones we can trust, actually. And in this way, it's a witness to the gospel. It's part of our witness to the gospel, but it's not all of our witness to the gospel. It's the first step. It commends Christianity to the world. And that has both an individual and a corporate effect. So whether it's the governments, as it were, looking at the church as a whole in the country and considering how the the government as an institution should relate to the church as an institution... Well, it recognises that the church is above reproach only if the members of the church have been above reproach. But also it works on an individual level. Imagine trying to share your faith with the guy at the tax office if he knows you've not paid your tax for this year or you're fiddling your forms. Your witness, your, your personal gospel witness will be severely compromised and it will be shown to be false or empty. So, uh, this submission to the authorities works on both an individual level and a corporate level. It works for your witnessing to Christ in your individual daily conversations and it works for the church as a whole across the country or across the borough or whatever else. How else will the world notice the good deeds that we do? Well, secondly, the world will notice the good deeds done in the privacy of our own homes. I'm looking now at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Now in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, of course, Peter picks up on the example of wives and how they ought to live in the home. And to many, uh, well, perhaps to some, I should say, these verses might come as a bit of a shock. Um, uh, They might even seem repulsive, uh, depending on your outlook and what you consider marriage to be. Uh, But I want to try and avoid distraction, and I want to try and avoid getting too emotively involved in in these words. Try and focus with me on, on why Peter brings up this topic. Why has Peter brought up this topic? What is he trying to say here? What is the purpose of Peter bringing up wives submitting to their husbands? Well, I would, I would say his purpose is not to give a general teaching about marriage. That's not what he's doing here. Although his teaching does accord with other parts of the Bible that do give general teaching on marriage. But that's not his purpose. The purpose that Peter's brought this topic is to show us, well, it comes under that banner that we've been considering of chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the, that's the banner that Peter's still working under. That's what, that's what he's working towards. And so he brings up this topic because uh, chapter 1 is saying, uh, verse 1 is saying, wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands so that, this is why he's, say, he's saying, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words. He's brought up this topic in order to show how the lives of a Christian can help influence an unbeliever to consider Christ. And that's what I want you to try and consider with me this evening. Without getting bogged down into into, uh, arguments about marriage and and how we ought to relate there. Although I would just stress again, what Peter says here fits with uh, what we're told in other parts of the New Testament about marriage. But Peter here is talking about how does the life of a believer affect an unbeliever's response to the Christian message. And he's saying, if a wife lives in this way, there's possibility that their husband might be won over for the sake of Christ, might be convinced, might be brought to consider Christ. How is the husband to be won over? How is the husband being convinced here? Well, they're being convinced by the wife being, well, making herself beautiful. The wife makes herself beautiful. The wife makes herself attractive. So the husband sees and and thinks, yeah, that that is genuine that she has. I want to know more about that. I'm drawn towards that. How is the wife making herself attractive? Well, verse 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Don't try and make yourself attractive just by uh, going and getting your hair done or getting a new set of clothes, or wearing some certain jewellery. Make yourself attractive by, verse 4, by taking care of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Make yourself beautiful, not by your outward appearance, but by being a beautiful person. Make yourself beautiful by being obedient to God. Obedience to God is that good life that Peter's urging us towards. Even in that most private space of our lives, the home, the marriage. Nobody else perhaps is seeing part of that woman's life except her husband. 
And Peter's saying, even in those most private moments, even in those most hidden, the ones that you can protect and, and shield most of the people in your lives from, even in those most private moments, live these good lives, full of good deeds, in order that your life might become beautiful. And if your life is beautiful, even in those most hidden areas, that can then be attractive to those who are outside Christ. Perhaps your husbands, that they might be won over when they see the beauty of your life. The private sphere of life can be a powerful witness to the gospel. A few years ago, I went on a training course, uh, which was all about communication. This is when I was uh, working at Land Rover. And they sent me on this, uh, on this training course to learn about communication. How do you communicate to other people? Thinking about our body language and our tone of voice. Thinking about listening to other people and, and people's motives and what they're trying to get out of a relationship and how you can align your motives to theirs so that you, you both come out with a positive outcome. And, and wow, this is the first time I'd heard some of this stuff. And at the time, it seemed so convincing. And I thought, man, if we can just get hold of this, the world would be changed. This is, this is really brilliant. A lot of the problems of the world surely could be solved if only people could understand each other better. And I was really taken by what the guy was saying. And I was hanging on his every word, making a load of notes, um, discussing, you know, fully involved with all that was going on in the day. And then towards the end of the day, the guy said, um, well, I hope that's been useful to you, but I'll just uh, give you this little um, point before we close, just to help you take these things with a pinch of salt. He says, I've tried to apply these things in every area of my life, but it's not been able to save my marriage. And at the minute, I'm going through a divorce, uh, which is not for any sort of adultery. It's just because we can't get on with one another. And in that moment, he gave us a little glimpse into his private life, into the sphere of his, of his heart, of his home. And it showed me that all this good news that he'd been talking about, all that I'd been taken with and all that seemed so attractive and, uh, and great and useful and helpful, they all came to nothing just in that one little illustration that he gave. It couldn't save his marriage. It couldn't save the, the loving relationship of two people who committed to one another, who were trying to make things work, and all this knowledge about communication couldn't even help him there. And so I thought, yeah, okay, some of it might be helpful. I've got to take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. That glimpse into his private life really undid a lot of what he said on that day. Now imagine the Christian who tells their work colleague, their spouse, their children, their siblings, their parents about the goodness of the gospel and about how it changes lives. And then imagine that person seeing what you're really like when nobody else is watching. How easy would it be for us to undo all the good work, all the best preaching that we could do, all the best speaking, all the best explanations, all the best literature we could hand out, could all be undone so quickly with an insincere life, with a life that is disobedient to God, even in the private spheres of our lives. The third area that I want to consider is well, the world will notice our good deeds done through your suffering. I'm looking now at chapter 3, verse 13 onwards. Um, verse 13 is quite a good argument. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? 
Well, that's a good general principle, isn't it? If you're, if you're eager to do good, why would anybody be against you? Well, it's a general principle, and as we've already seen in 1 Peter, it's not, it's not a, a rule. Sometimes the world is against us, even when we are eager to do good. Verse 14, it goes on. But even if you should suffer for what is right, well, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Peter takes them words from the book of Isaiah. That's what God said to Isaiah when Isaiah was sent to preach to uh, Israel and to Judah. And he said, do not fear the things that they fear. Instead of fearing the armies and the nations around, instead of fearing uh, the sword and and the punishment that the kings might uh, hand out to you, instead of fearing what they fear, fear me. Set me apart as Lord. Trust me for your safety. That's the, the image that Peter's picking up there. On verse 15... He says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Just as Isaiah was told to set apart God as the one that he feared and be obedient to him alone, so Peter's saying, Christians, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Don't fear what the world fears. Don't search for what they're searching for. Don't trust in what they're trusting. Set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your heart. And then look at what will happen when you do that. Verse 15, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Trust him, depend upon him, lean upon him, follow him. And then, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If you do set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, if you are trusting God in this way, the expectation is that people around will ask you, what is it that you're hoping in? Why is it that you act differently when you suffer? Why is it that you don't trust in the things that we trust in? If you approach suffering with the faith that says, even if this period of suffering is the death of me, yet I will continue to trust Christ, then the world will recognise that. And the world will want to know about it. Perhaps not everyone, but some. If you maintain hope, even through a period of despair in your life, if you maintain faith in God, even when the answer to your prayers seems to be a long time coming and your situation looks helpless, if you persevere as a Christian, even through the most severe trials, if you have patience in waiting for God to act or deliver, if you are able to love your enemies, even when you're severely oppressed, if you continue to be generous, even in your times of greatest need, whenever you live demonstrating that this world is not your home, whenever you live demonstrating that you're an alien, you're a stranger here, you're not staying here, you're not living for what this world offers, you're waiting, you're hoping, you're expecting for something greater. Whenever you live in that way, the expectation is the world will see it and they'll want to know something about your hope. The way that you live can be a witness for the gospel. Your actions won't be the cause of conversion. Somebody won't be able to just become a Christian just by, just by watching you live out your faith. But your actions are a proof of the genuineness of your faith. Your actions are a proof that the hope that you have is genuine. 
Your actions are proof that there is something better than what this world offers. And so, living for the gospel in this way, it's not going to eliminate the need to speak for Jesus. But living for the gospel in this way means that it might create an opportunity for us to speak in this way. And if we live for Jesus in every area of life, then when we do get that opportunity to speak, it will show that the words that we're speaking, the hope that we're offering, the gospel that we're presenting, really is true and has lasting value. I want to close just by um, considering this question. Who is, who is it that benefits from us living in this way? Who is it that benefits? Is Peter telling Christians to live in this way, to, to live faithful to God, to live different to the world? Is this some kind of philanthropy? Is it just for the sake of those out in the world that some might be one? Or is there some other benefit? This evening we've been, we've been very outward focused in the way we've been considering these things. If we live in this way, the world will see and perhaps respond and act. But the letter of 1 Peter is not written out of a sense of philanthropy. It's written in order to encourage Christians and to build Christians up in their faith. So how can what Peter's been telling us this evening, how can that be an encouragement to us as Christians? How can that spur us on in our faith? Well, let's go back through the passage and look at the reasons that Peter's giving. Chapter 2, verse 21. To this, that is to... Uh, suffering uh, for doing good. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ becomes our example in the way that we live, in the way that we suffer even for doing good. Chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. I'm blessed when I suffer? How can I be blessed when I suffer? Doesn't the word blessed mean happy? How can I be happy? How can I be blessed if my life is one of suffering? Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. When Christ lived, he lived in perfect obedience to God. He lived the good life. And the life that Christ lived led him to rejection and abuse and suffering. But he continued in living that good life. Why? Verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ went through that suffering. Christ continued to live the good life. Christ continued to live different from the world around in order to bring you to God. In order that by dying on the cross, he might bring some to God. He might reconcile some to God. Do you see the link? Do you see why Christ is called our example? That as Christians, as we suffer, as we live different lives to the world, as we are rejected... We're doing that in order to bring some to God. To be a witness for the gospel. To be able to share the good news of Christ and and bring some to God. Just like Christ lived, suffered, died in order to 
bring us to God. And so, when Peter said, you're blessed when you suffer, he fleshes that out a bit more in chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. When a Christian suffers in this way and is rejected by the world, it's not a rejection by Christ. In fact, it's a fellowship with Christ. It's participating in the sufferings of Christ. It's being made like Christ. It's sharing in the mission of Christ to suffer and to be rejected by the world in order that some might be saved, in order that some might be brought to God. And so as Christians, we're going to live distinctive lives. And at times, we're going to be rejected. And at times, we're going to suffer. But we're going to do that in order to bring some to Christ. And as we do that, we're sharing, we're fellowshipping, we're participating in the sufferings that Christ himself endured. And so to live out the gospel in this way is, is, is to, to become more Christ-like. To become more Christ-like. So ultimately, when we do these things, when we live this good life, we're not doing it, you know, we're not doing it for our glory. We're not doing it to stick it on our Facebook feed and show the world what a, what a good person we are and how attractive this Christian life is and why don't you become one like me? That's not the intention. We're not here to flaunt our good deeds. We're not here to parade them through the streets and, uh, and show off in that way. That would be glorifying ourselves. The aim of this, living the Christian life in this way, is that Christ might be glorified. That they will glorify God on the day that he visits. So we don't need to advertise or flaunt or show off in our good deeds. That would bring glory to us. Instead, we just continue living in obedience to Christ, being more and more Christ-like each day, so that when people look at us, they're not seeing us. They're not praising us. They're not glorifying us. But instead that they would be led to glorify Christ. That they would turn to him.